Hello everyone, my name is Scott Irwin and I am re-recording this um, because we originally lost the file, the audio file, back whenever we did it. So we are, this is the start of the semester. We have decided to um, preach a three-week series on just three sections in the middle of Romans. Um, normally we um, we walk through a, an entire book of the Bible, which we are going to do. As soon as we're done with this three-week series in Romans, we're going to start walking through all of Second Thessalonians. We did First Thessalonians last semester and Ecclesiastes, bits and pieces of it last semester. Um, and uh, we're going to do three weeks in Romans and then jump into Second Thessalonians here in a few weeks. But this is, in, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, but I want you to turn, to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. So I want to give you a little bit of background. I'm doing the first part. Drew's doing the second part. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of background on Romans to catch you up to speed before we jump into chapter 5. Um, so Paul writes this letter to Rome, to these Christians in Rome. And as far as we know, Paul has never been, been to Rome. He has never visited Rome. And there's actually not a whole lot we know about the letter, like surrounded. We don't know what he knew and why he was writing. We only have the text, and so we can conclude based on what the text says that this is what Paul is addressing and things like that. But there, aren't, there isn't too much that we know for sure. One thing we know for sure, or actually two things, is that, because he says them, is that he wanted to prepare a way for his visit to Rome. So he was planning on going to Rome. He had never been to Rome, as far as we know. And so this letter was to help prepare the way. The other thing we know because of um, chapter 15, verse 24, that uh, he was wanting to secure support from them for his mission to continue on to Spain. Listen to what 15:24 says. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So we know that Paul is writing to them and hoping to prepare a way and also to find some support for his mission to Spain, which he probably never made, actually. We're pretty sure he didn't. So, But his reason for writing isn't as clear as we might think. One thing we know that there are Gentile and Christians in this church um, that he is writing because of the content of the letter. The other, the other interesting piece that we know that happens in Rome and um, would have influenced what was happening in the Roman church is is something that uh, Acts 18 mentions in passing. Um, it mentions this Emperor Claudius basically kicking out all the Jews in Rome. So listen to this uh, in Acts 18, verse 1. Um, it says, he And he found a Jew, sorry, verse 2, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, um, which is Rome, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And so we know that um, Priscilla and Aquila arrive in Corinth in Acts 18 because of the Emperor Claudius kicking, the, expelling the Jews out of Rome. And we believe that happened um, because of history. We believe that happened around 49 AD. So because of that, we know that there were Christians in Rome. We also know that after Claudius dies... Um, they allowed Jews to come back into Rome, and some of the Jews that left had become Christian. So now there's some debate over how Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians can be united since they, are, uh, they, they, they have different practices is kind of the idea. So, so let, me, let me just walk through chapter 1, 2, and 3, and 4 to get to, get to chapter 5. Let me sum it up chapter 1 in this. Paul points, in chapter 1, um, he points to the fact that all of humanity is trapped by sin and selfishness and that God will judge us according to our sin. Chapter 2 kind of continues this thinking by saying that no one has an excuse. And then he says to Jews, um, you especially. And he points out how Jews are just as bad and maybe even worse because they knew better and still chose to harden their heart to God. 
he says, he quotes, he says, For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Jewish people. So get off your high horse. Okay? You're not that much better than these Gentile Christians just because of your history with God. He says, no one is righteous, which is where chapter 3 goes and concludes that no one is righteous and no one can be righteous in God's sight with or without the law. And then we come to chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, which I would like for you to um, open up and read if you can. I don't know, you could be driving in a car, probably shouldn't do that. Um, You could be walking around Boomer, which I don't know, maybe you could do that on your phone. But I believe Romans 3, 21 through 26 to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. It is huge. It is thick and dense with amazing truth about Jesus. But the very first couple of verses says this, but now a righteousness, because he just gets done saying no one is righteous, but he says now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith, big word, faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, so he says this is the, 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 this righteousness that is impossible for us to have on our own is now possible through faith in Jesus. And by the way, the law and the prophets have been testifying to this from the beginning. Now, this is not the first time we see the word faith in Romans. We actually see it in chapter 1, verse 17, which I believe to be a heading for what, for his next long argument that he makes from, from chapter 1, basically, through chapter 8 at some level, or really even chapter 4, through chapter 4 at least. So we see this word faith in, in this heading in verse 17, For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is what Paul is getting at all along. In fact, it's fair to say that he, okay, in chapters 1 through 4, he's wanting to show this um, in order to show that there needs to be unity among the Gentile and Jewish believers. That righteousness is by faith. It's not based on your previous experience with God, Jews, and it's not based on your own, um, your own whatever life apart from God. It's based on Jesus and what he's done. So that goes from, that's chapter 3, and then we go into chapter 4, and he goes on to prove that even Abraham, who is the Jewish forefather, was made righteous by faith in God. Um, and God keeping His promises to redeem and restore the world through His seed, which is Jesus. Before the law was even given, and before circumcision. So basically what, what Paul goes on to argue is that, listen, you guys know Abraham, right? You like him? Of course you do. He is the father of your nation. Like, God said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted and believed and had faith in God before the law was ever given. Before, and before circumcision. Because see, the Gentile, the Jewish Christians were trying to get the Gentile Christians to do all these ceremonial things, um, circumcision and, and these dietary restrictions and Sabbath and all these things that, that they have been doing for a long time, but wasn't required to have faith in Jesus. And so he ends chapter 4 with this, with this great line. It says, it, meaning righteousness, and, and this is chapter 4, 24 through 25. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who has delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he's saying, it will be counted to us who believe in Him. It's about those who believe and have faith in Him. They will be made righteous. So he says, Jesus' death and resurrection essentially play a central unifying agent of our being made righteous before God, both Jews and Gentiles. So he says all that in chapters 1 through 4 to get to chapter 5. And he goes on to talk about just how amazing God's love for us is and this amazing gift that we have in Jesus that is so 
so undeserved by us. So let me start with chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have been justified by faith. We have been made righteous by faith. In fact, the word righteousness and justification are always oftentimes interchangeably interchanged. Um, the same essential word, just used in different way. Um, so we are justified. We are made righteous by faith. Because of that, because of what Jesus did and our faith in that, we have this, this phrase, peace with God. Peace with God, something that all of us are after and something that cannot happen without faith in Jesus. Tim Keller talks about how there's three ways to live. The first way is to, to live the best way you think there is to live. To live by your own strength and power, by your own, by your own wit and wisdom, to, to do whatever you think is best and to live that way. That's one way to live. And chapter 1 deals with that in Romans. The other way to live is the religious way. To think somehow, well, if I do all these things, then I will earn and deserve peace with God. And chapter 2 deals with that. It's like you had the law and you still couldn't do it. Like you're not righteous because you live under the law. That's never going to make you righteous. Hebrews talked about how the slaughter of thousands, tens of thousands of bulls and goats doesn't take away your sin. The third way to live, Keller describes, which honestly the Bible describes, is the gospel way to live. And that's what he's saying here. That now because of the gospel, of Jesus, that you can have peace with God. And I also want to point out, in this verse, he uses the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's interesting that he's writing to the Christians in Rome who've probably heard a phrase over and over and over that Caesar is Lord. This is a phrase that they would have said and repeated. and It was a way to give allegiance to Rome and to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And Paul interjects this on a regular basis throughout Romans to point out, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord. We are we we give allegiance to him. We confess allegiance to Jesus as Lord. That was a very controversial thing to say. Basically um, usurping the Roman government and Caesar's authority. It's a big deal. Let's keep going. Uh, verses two and three. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, I'm going to stop there in, um, in right in the middle of chapter 3, because I want to talk about this word access. The word access is better translated as introduction. Um, so the word access may give us a little too much credit, um, like, like a door that's open that we, that we get to just choose to walk through. The truth is, what this word is describing, the truth is we, we, we do not come in by our own strength, but we, we need an introducer, who is Jesus. So the emphasis is on Christ's activity, not ours. But because it's also a verb in the present tense, which means that um, this past act has an ongoing result, it's no wonder that they use this idea of access because it's, it is a past event that has an ongoing present um, result. So he says, the grace Paul's describing in Romans that we now stand in because this amazing gift of Jesus, he says that gift, that grace that we have leads us to rejoice which literally means boast. The word rejoice literally means to boast in the hope of the glory of God and in our sufferings. Why? Because they lead to a greater hope in God. <clears throat> Let me read the rest of 3 through 5. <clears throat> Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, um, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us um, to sh or does not sorry hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has given, who has been given to us. See, notice the progression of suffering that leads to endurance, that produces character, which produces hope. And, and God's love, um, sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. The word character, okay, the word character in, is, is, a, is a kind of a distinct Pauline word. In other words, it's not used anywhere outside of the Bible. Now, we don't know that Paul made it up. We just know that we don't find it anywhere else. It's kind of a mixture of two different words. Um, but it's, it links these two ideas of being trialed and tested. Okay, So he's talking about how, um, how endurance produces character. So in other words, it indicates that something of quality... Um, that this thing, whatever it is that it produced, is of quality because it has been put through a test or a trial. So your phone case is of quality if you always drop it and it and the screen never shatters. Okay, if that's the case, then your your phone case has been tested to be of quality. And we see this great example right before this, in chapter 4, verses 20 through 21 of Abraham. Listen to this. It says in, in, this is chapter 4, Romans 4, 20 through 21. No unbelief made him, that's Abraham, waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So what Paul is saying in, in chapter 5 is that when someone trusts God through trials and grows in character, they naturally will grow in hope in God. And that those who have hope in God are never put to shame. And there is this distinct difference okay, the, the, between worldly hope and Christian hope. Okay, worldly hope says it, hope is described as the prospect of what might happen. But Christian hope and the kind of hope that Paul's describing that we get when we persevere and endure and grow in character, the kind of hope we have is, is about the prospect of what has been guaranteed, namely God's promises. Christian hope implies a level of certainty in God's promises that, that can be trusted. So let me read verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, whenever you are studying and observing the Bible, it's always important to pick out several things, okay? Repeated words, phrases, or ideas, um, linking words, purpose statements, um, lists. Sometimes Paul or whoever is giving lists. It's important to, list, to, to notice those lists. One thing that's really important to notice as you're studying the Bible is anytime there's compare and contrast, if, there's com if the author is comparing or contrasting things, it's, it's important to notice that. So in these verses, what is Paul contrasting? See, Paul's already made it clear in chapter 3 that no one is righteous in God's sight. No one. But in here, okay, in verse 6, he calls us weak, which literally means morally frail. Okay, what, what does that mean? How, how, how are we weak? Well, in chapter 1, he describes how we chase after created things over the Creator. We're weak. We're morally frail. We give in to worshiping created things over the Creator. All of us are amazing worshipers. In fact, we were made to worship and find fulfillment and great joy in the things of God. Um, and in all of, we were created to enjoy all these things, but we're naturally born worshipers. And Paul tells us in Romans that without God intervening with Jesus, we would never be able to break away from worshiping things that will never, ever satisfy us like God will. He's the only thing that's worthy of our true worship. 
But he also calls us, in verse 6, ungodly. Okay, how are we ungodly? Well, in chapter 1, again, he tells us that we exchange the glory of God for the glory of other things. We're ungodly. We exchange God's glory. God deserves the glory, and we give it, and we, we, we exchange it for other things. Then he calls us, if you notice this, enemies um, of God. In fact, that's actually down in uh, verse 10. So let me go ahead and read down that. Read down through verse, I'll just read through 11. No, I'll read through 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He calls us enemies of God. Anytime I hear this, anytime I think about this, I always think of, I don't know about you, I always think of the nicest people that I know. Some of which are Christian, some of which are not. And I always think, enemies, huh? Enemies. How are we enemies of God? Was I an enemy of God before I trusted Jesus with my life? Yeah, the Bible, here's the Bible's testimony, is that yes, we were. And Romans 1, again, tells us that we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we did that because we did not seek to acknowledge God. Instead, we wanted to keep all the credit for ourselves. We naturally... We do not want to give God credit for the things that He deserves. We want to keep them for ourselves. And in that sense, we are enemies to God. But verse 8 is this amazing turn. But God shows His love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love stands in great contrast to these other things. um, Being weak and ungodly and enemies. God's love stands in great contrast to the seemingly insurmountable evidence of what our sins deserve. So the way Paul is describing this, he's setting this up, he's helping us see this great contrast so that we would be ex- uh, sorry, ex- uh, surprised by the unexpected nature of Christ's death and sacrifice for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Such ginormous truth in so few words. So he looks down on us as weak, ungodly sinners who do nothing but take what God gives. Okay, Enemies of his. Take what God gives. Use it for our own purposes and try to take credit for it ourselves. And he says, the cross. That's what I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him the cross. And all that it represents. So, let's continue on. Um, Actually, we've already read verses 9 through 11, but I want to point out a couple of phrase that's mentioned several times. It's mentioned a couple times in our our section in chapter 5, and it's mentioned two other times in the rest of 5. It's this phrase, more than. And here it is. Since we have, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, more than. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the phrase I meant. Much more. For while we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And he's saying, since Jesus' death for sin is what saves us from God's wrath, which is eternal death, Jesus' death saves us from death, and reconciles us to God, how much more will Jesus' life, His resurrection, save us to live for Him for all of eternity? Jesus' death saves us from death, and Jesus' life saves us to live eternally with God. And He says, all of this, all of this is reason to boast or rejoice in God. Let's, Let's read verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me read what one commentator said about this boasting. 
He said, God justly considers such sinners in the right, we are now righteous in other words, because they are reconciled to God through the erasing of sin and now live from a new reality created through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The grounds for such confidence or boasting lie entirely in God. And this is, is, is what has blown me away about studying Romans 5. Is that we were on a path to death with no chance of life eternally. And, and Jesus comes along and not only saves us from that death, but radically resurrects us to life. And not only that, before Christ, we had no chance of being righteous before God. Not even if we lived under the law and tried to do it perfectly, which no one can, no one could. We have no chance of being righteous before Jesus. But Jesus comes along and not only saves us from this death, brings us, radically changes us and, and renews us in life. But all of a sudden, He begins to make us new so that we can be righteous. Like he, he makes us able to do the things that God would want us to do and to love to do the things that God wants us to do. So before, we didn't love to do the things that God would want us to do. We were enemies. We were ungodly. We were weak. But because of Jesus, we're brought from death to life and now his Spirit in us, transforming us and molding us and shaping us into the image of Christ. Now we love, we grow to love to do the things that God wants us to do and loves for us to do. And that, that is amazing grace. Here's a question Is this grace, is it really free? First, um, chapter 5, verse 15 talks about this free gift. Is it really free? And what does that mean? And, and is our understanding of a free gift today different than Paul's understanding of a free gift then? That's what Drew's going to talk about. Hey guys, this is Drew. And uh, last week, we kind of uh, messed up, or I guess I kind of messed up. That is that on the second half of our teaching out of Romans 5, I forgot to record it or press the wrong button or whatever. So all that to say, we, we don't have that lesson recorded. Normally, um, when that happens, we just kind of say, bummer, and move on without it. But we kind of felt that this week's lesson, uh, or last week's lesson was so kind of important and foundational, not just for the next couple weeks as we continue this talk on the gospel in Romans, but really kind of for our understanding of the gospel as a whole, and, and because we really do want to build our lives around the gospel to, to have a gospel-centered life as one of our main values is put, we just really wanted to make sure that, that um, we had this one recorded so that those who missed it could go back and listen to it or those who heard it and, and wanted to know more of it um, could, um, could kind of go back and re-listen to it. And so for that reason, I'm kind of recording it again, and I'm just going to teach it um, yeah, through this, through this little extra recording here, and, and hopefully this will, will still be helpful to you in that sense. Um, so here's where we start. Um, I, I have three kids, Ella, Hudson, and Hadley. Uh, Ella being seven and Hudson six, Hadley three. All of them uh, have grown up going to the same preschool at a young age. Ella and Hudson, of course, are out of it now, but Hadley is still in that preschool. And it's Sunnybrook Christian Preschool, the school associated with our church here. Um, and, and the school itself does not meet in the church. It actually meets on this little house on the parking lot there on the edge of it. 
called, uh, we call it the White House, simply because it is a house that is white. And it's just the easiest, simplest way to say, hey, we're meeting over in the White House today or head to the White House. And so um, people in the church call it that. And, and everyone that goes to that school, all the teachers there, they just call it the White House. Um, and needless to say, this has led to a little bit of confusion on the part of my kids sometimes. I have on more than one occasion been riding in the car with one of them and listening to the radio and, and someone will come on the radio and say something along the lines of the, the White House has formally condemned Russia for its practices or its actions in Crimea today. And, and inevitably when they hear that on the radio, something like that. My kids' eyes get really big in the back and, and they kind of shout out, Dad, they're, they're talking about my school. My, my school's on the radio. And, and they get super excited and, and it's happened multiple times and I don't think yet I've had the heart to kind of break it to them that they're not actually talking about your school. Um, they're talking about something entirely different. Now, it's confusing enough for them as it is to, to hear the name White House on the radio, but ha had they were, were they able to kind of understand even the context of that, to really understand the other words in that sentence, they would be even more confused. Um, so why is my school so angry at Russia right now? And what does my school care about Crimea? And what goes on over there? Um, there is a ton of confusion that can be caused by assuming that we all mean the same thing when we say a particular word. For my kids, it's this idea of the White House, when the world all means one thing, and for my kids and all their buddies at that preschool, they mean something totally different, but they assume that we're talking about the same thing. Grace is a word like that. Grace is one of those words that is used by Christians everywhere. If you grew up in a church at all, if you grew up in a Christian family at all, you know this word and you've heard it a lot and you've used it a lot. And because so many of us have heard it for all our lives, I think we can all kind of assume that we mean the exact same thing when we're talking about it. And so we never even kind of stop to say, well, what do you mean by that? Uh, but, but the truth is grace is um, a really, really big word now, at its most basic idea, that word grace in the Greek, charis, it just means gift or favor. And, and so we all kind of get that a little bit, that it has to do with the gift. And, and it wasn't necessarily in, in the first century always a theological word. A lot of times you could just use it to talk about giving a gift or bestowing favor or bestowing a blessing on someone of some kind. Um, but the New Testament, of course, and Paul specifically uses it in a lot of theological ways. And so it becomes a very big and rich word in the Bible and in the New Testament. And therefore, it carries a lot of nuance to it. There's a, there's a lot of different angles that a person could be kind of um, taking when they use that word. And, and without necessarily clarifying, it can, it can get not just confusing, but it can kind of lead to conflict. One of, one of the major kind of examples of this happens between a church father in the 4th century that most people have at least heard of by the name of Augustine or Augustine. And then uh, kind of a debate that he got into, an ongoing debate with a guy that you may or may not have heard of by the name of Pelagius. And, and they got into it over this idea of grace. And kind of in, in the end, Augustine sort of won this battle. And, and so church history has kind of followed him in, in our understanding of grace, at least Many Christians have followed his understanding of what grace is, and Pelagius was kind of pushed to the side as works-based or legalist, and, uh, and, and so we, we kind of put him away, and, and that's kind of one of the worst things you could label somebody in church history a lot of times was Pelagian in their theology, or, or some people use this phrase semi-Pelagian as sort of a bad thing or whatever, but uh, the truth is, when we've stopped and looked back at it, the truth is Pelagius, it's not that he didn't care about grace. It's not that he was all about works and believed in a works-based salvation or anything like that. Um, Augustine did not believe in grace more than Pelagius. He just believed in it differently. That's not to say that Pelagius 
was right in his understanding of grace, but he really did believe in grace. I'm not even saying Augustine had it fully right in his understanding, but, but this has happened a lot where we have looked at people who believe differently than us, and we've just go ahead and just labeled them as non-grace-oriented or, or as legalist or as works-based. There's, there's actually a church in town um, in, in Stillwater who would... I, I think probably have no problem labeling Sunnybrook, our church here, would label Sunnybrook as um, legalist or as not caring about grace, as, as works-oriented, where, whereas if, if you've ever been to Sunnybrook, um, you know, those of you who go there, um, you would know that grace is huge to us, that, that we talk about it a lot, that we center a lot of our teaching around grace because we believe the New Testament centers a whole lot around grace. Um, but but the, the problem is that this church, when it talks about grace, it means something different than what Sunnybrook means when it talks about grace. And so the problem persists today. Um, there's this guy by the name of John Barclay, and he wrote this really, really big and, and kind of important book in 2015 called Paul and the Gift. And, and it really has begun to kind of be a paradigm shift for some people in the way we've discussed grace um, throughout history and theologically and all of those things. Um, it's been kind of eye-opening because what Barclay says is he traces that through history there have been at least six different, he calls them perfections, you might call them nuances or connotations to the word of grace. Um, and, and he says that basically throughout history people have have talked about grace, and when they have, they've emphasized one of these six uh, perfections. What he means by perfections is like, what makes grace grace? Like when, when this thing is present um, and it is really all there, then that would make something a perfect gift or a perfect grace. And so he uses that word, nuances might work fine, but he says there have been six different perfections that people have used and emphasized, or they've emphasized different combinations of these things throughout history, and and that has created sometimes the confusion and the conflict that we see. So uh, I want to list those off for you, and and as I kind of said on Thursday night when I talked through this, hang in there we're getting we really do like to dig in at the table when we talk through through the bible and stuff but this is maybe digging in a little bit more than usual kind of digging a little deeper if you are uh kind of a theology or historical background um nerd like me you'll you'll probably geek out over this a little bit um but I really do think that this is important. If, if you're not somebody who's crazy into that, I, I think that this is important for you to follow. And I really think you'll actually, you'll be able to get this and, and enjoy it. But um, So there are six different nuances or perfections to grace. I want to list those out for you. The first one is what we call superabundance. And, and that is to say that, that this, this aspect focuses on the bigness of a particular gift. Um, that word charis. So the, the bigness, the lavishness, the extravagance, one of the things that makes a gift a really good gift is when it is really big, when it is really extravagant. And, and so we would say, a number of people would say that's, that's true of grace kind of theologically. One of the things that makes grace grace is its bigness. Now, if we were to go on, we read the first half of Romans 5 on Thursday night. If you were to go on into the second half of Romans 5, you would actually see this. Paul emphasizes the superabundance of grace in there when he starts talking about how big sin is and, and how much sin has kind of wrecked the world. But he goes on to say that grace is so much bigger than that. Um, that where grace increases, he says, or where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that it is always bigger, that it is always better and more powerful. That's what makes grace so beautiful is its, its bigness, its extravagance. So superabundance is one aspect of grace that people have looked at and really emphasized throughout history. Uh, another one is called singularity. And, and this focuses a little bit less on the gift itself um, that is being given, um, and a little bit more on the, the giver. Singularity, this idea of that, that a gift must involve singularity or grace must involve singularity, says that it needs to flow out of a spirit of benevolence or goodness alone. It is the, the gift 
giver is only good in their character and in their nature, and therefore only good things will flow out of him. He, he will only ever give good things. So, so in, in the instance of God, that is to say that God is so gracious that he can only bring good things into this world. He won't bring um, painful things. He won't bring hard things. He, he only brings goodness and graciousness and kindness. So there's this Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo, um, and he, he was writing around the time of Paul. By the way, two, two philosophers, one was a Roman philosopher by the name of Seneca, and this other one was a Jewish philosopher by the name of Philo, and they both write a fair amount about the idea of gifts and gift-giving and grace as far as it's concerned with God. And so we get kind of our ideas about the first century gift-giving a lot from kind of reading these guys. Uh, Philo said that he really did stress this idea of singularity. He said that God's grace cannot include anything, not only it cannot include anything bad, but it also cannot include anything that might even appear to be bad. So God could not cause suffering. God could not cause hardship in our life. Grace is the opposite of wrath, and therefore, for, for grace to really be grace, it must come from a God who only brings the good. And this is kind of the idea of singularity. Uh, the third thing that uh, gets stressed when people have talked about grace through history is priority. What we mean by priority is that grace must be preemptive, that it comes first, that it is given to somebody before anything is received from that person. So here's an example. If you come up to me and you give me a iPhone as kind of a gift and I kind of look at it and go, oh man, that's, that's really nice. Um, here, and I, and I kind of pull out my iPhone and I give that back to you. The question is, is that really a gift? Am I, when I give you back my iPhone, really giving a gift? Or am I just kind of um, paying you back? Am I just uh, sort of responding to something you did out of guilt or out of obligation or whatever? Um, there's a lot of people would say, yeah, that's, that's not really the true essence of a gift. A gift needs to come first. It needs to be given before anything has been given to me. Um, so, so the ancients would use the example of parents in this. Parents were the perfect example of priority of gift giving because they give, first of all, life to their child before that kid can give anything to them. Before the kid is even born, they're giving that kid the gift of life. Uh, they're giving that kid food when, when he's a baby. They're giving that kid uh, gifts. They're giving that kid a, a house to live in and all of this before that baby has given anything to them. It is a priority, a gift that comes first. And so there are some theologians who have really stressed this, and they would say, yeah, um, we cannot give, in, in order for grace to really be grace, God must give it to us before I give him anything. In other words, I don't earn grace by doing good works. And there were some who would even say that I cannot get grace by my faith, by my believing. No, no, God came to me and he gave me grace before I ever believed. Some people get the idea of, of you know, predestination that God chose who he was going to give grace to before the beginning of time even, that he had in mind who he would give his grace to. And so before that person even believed, God had already made up his mind, I'm giving this gift to you. I'm giving grace to you in this. Um, number four is incongruity. And, and this idea of grace emphasizes, or this idea of, of gift giving and incongruity emphasizes that a gift is given without regard for the worth or merit of the recipient. In other words, the gift is so much more than that person deserves. And, and we understand this idea a little bit like when Christmas comes and somebody gives you a really extravagant gift or on your birthday you get something really amazing and you might say something like, you should not have done this. You should not have spent so much money on me. What we're kind of saying is like, I don't deserve this. This is too much. I can't believe you did this. I don't, I don't deserve this much money or this extravagant of a gift. And, and the gift giver might say, well, exactly. That's, that's what makes it a gift, is that it's not something you deserve. It's not something that, um, that your actions 
earned. If, if that were the case, then it wouldn't really be so much of a gift. It would be payment. So that's what makes a gift a really good gift. And, and some people would say that's what makes grace really good graces. We don't deserve it. It's not something I earned. It's given regardless of my worthiness. Um, so that's incongruity. Number five is efficacy. And that is simply that the gift accomplishes what it is intended to accomplish. So here's a great example maybe of this. If I know that you really enjoy good music and you like listening to music, and so I say, man, I want to give you something that you're going to enjoy. I want to give you a gift that you're really going to love. And so I go out and I find the latest Nickelback album, and I go and I give that to you. Uh, for your birthday or for whatever reason, just a random gift. There are a lot of people who would say that is not a good gift. That is not what a gift could be because the whole point, I wanted to give you something that you could enjoy because of your great musical tastes. And a lot of people would say they're not going to enjoy that. Your gift did not do what it was intended to do. That's not the essence of what a gift ought to be. A gift ought to be uh, it ought to accomplish what you're trying to do. Or if you say, man, I've really been looking for some way that I could keep track of time better. And I go, ah, oh, yeah, and I log that away. And I go get you a gift. I go to the store and I buy you a toaster. Um, that is, that's not a good gift. It's, it's not helping with what you, what you needed, what you wanted. It doesn't do what it intends. And, and a lot of people would say, this has to be true of grace. In order for grace to be grace, it must accomplish what it intends to do. Um, namely, when we talk about this, like saving a person, forgiving a person and reconciling them to God. And so those who are of kind of the Calvinist persuasion in their, in their theology, they, they would use this as, as a key kind of touchstone of what grace ought to be. Um, they believe in what's called irresistible grace. That is a grace that God gives to a person, and when he gives it, that person will not be able to resist it. Um, God has chosen them to be saved. He gives them grace, and that grace does exactly what it was intended to do. It saves them, and there is no way that they will be able to turn it down or walk away from it. This is, um, this, is this idea of efficacy. Grace accomplished what it intends to. Um, number six, and the last one, is what we call non-circularity. And that is that in order for a gift to really be a gift, it must be given without expectation of repayment or reciprocity. Uh, a gift cannot be paid back. And, and this one, especially for us in the modern world, we really do get this. Uh, it's kind of a big one for us. A gift that is given with strings attached. In other words, a gift that is given, if I give you something just for the sake of you owing me, or I give you something uh, just so you'll like me more, or, or give you something so that you'll give me something back, we would say, that's not a real gift. That's just you trying to manipulate. That's just you trying to, um, to, to get somebody in your debt. And, and so this is called non or that, that, that would be circularity, that they have to pay you back, and the circle kind of continues. It circles back around you. So a lot of people would say, grace means non-circularity, that the person does not have to pay you back. So, as I said, different Christians have emphasized different ones of these aspects or, or different combinations of these aspects throughout history. And that's why we have to ask, what do we really mean when we say grace? But more importantly, we need to ask this question, what does the Bible mean when it says grace? Um, what is Paul talking about when he says um, the word grace? In, in Romans 5, 2, when he says that we've been given access into this grace by which we now stand, or this grace we now stand in, um, what does he mean when he says that? And that is the important question, because in the end, it doesn't really matter what I believe about grace. It doesn't matter what you believe about grace unless our beliefs are matching up with Scripture. And so we really want to make sure that we are understanding the Bible right when it talks about grace. I would say um, that at least four of these six things I just mentioned are biblical. You can maybe make the case for five, um, and, and we'll get into that maybe in, in week three of this series, I guess, of which ones I, I kind of believe to be biblical. But, but I would say four of them, and so we, we want to make sure that we know which ones those are. One of the helpful questions to ask. 
one of the helpful questions to ask when we're trying to figure this out is, what of these aspects of the gift were important in the first century? In other words, when Paul was writing about gifts and grace, uh, what aspects did his culture emphasize in, in perfections of gifts, in what it meant for grace to be grace? Uh, we don't want to define this based on our modern Western definition of what a gift should be or what grace should be. For example, probably the, the most important aspect of a gift to us today in, in our Western world would be non-circularity. And that is that idea that um, if, if someone gives a gift to a person with the expectation that they'll get something in return, if I give you something and the only real reason I'm giving it is that I'm kind of expecting you're going to give me something too, that there's strings attached to it, that you're going to owe me, then we would say that's not a real gift at all. Even if it's not the only reason you give it, even, even if that's anywhere in your mind that I'm giving this to you and, and part of the benefit is that you're going to owe me later, we would say, no, that's, that's a gift with strings attached, which means it's not a gift. But, but that's not actually how they thought of it back then. This idea of non-circularity being really important for a gift was, was not important to them. In, in the first century, it was kind of understood that gifts were given with some expectation of a response, of, of a payback, if you will, later on. Um, and so the way it would work is I would give you something, and I, I might not say this, it was kind of an unspoken rule, but the understanding was that you were somewhat in my debt at that point, that, that you were expected at some point to give me a gift. And so you would either give me a gift of equal value or more likely you would give me a gift of greater value later so that then the, the tables have turned and I'm kind of in your debt. And, and I would give you a gift of greater value and, and it would go kind of around like this. This would be circular gift giving. Now, before you go, man, that's just awful, and, and they didn't understand anything about gifts, and, and then just nobody was pure-hearted. No, that's, that's not really how they thought of those things. That was, that was kind of the way for social relationships and for community to be formed. In a day before health insurance or life insurance, in a day before sick leave, this really wasn't all that bad. When, when you think about it, and, um, it would be good and helpful in a village if, if when somebody got sick and, and they weren't able to work for a few days and weren't able to take care of their families, well, if, if I go give that person a gift to help them out, that's great. And, and the truth is, there will probably be a day and time when I'm going to be in need when I'm going to need that favor back again, when I'm going to need some gift from them, or, or I might just be giving a gift in order to sort of start forming a relationship, in, in which case they, they give a gift back to show that they want to form this friendship with me. Or, or maybe there was even uh, what we'd call kind of a patronage system in which those who are wealthier in, in a society might provide certain gifts such as food or protection or shelter, whatever that might be, to, to those kind of who are lower down in society, those of a lower class or of a poorer class. And, and though those people would never be able to really repay the patron mater with, with material goods, they would repay them with honor. They would repay them with respect or with support or maybe when voting season, election season comes around with votes, and, and it was just kind of understood this was a way that society functioned and that people would take care of each other. Um, so this is one area in, in, in first century. They didn't really have much thought of non-circular gift giving. Uh, another area that did not receive a whole lot of emphasis back then was incongruity. That's not to say that it was never thought of. That's not to say that incongruity never entered into the system. Uh, for example, a ruler who wanted to kind of display his benevolence to his people, he might give grain to everyone in the nation as kind of just a show of his kindness to them. Well, if you give food, if you give grain to everybody in the nation or everyone in the land, you have to know that there are going to be people that you're giving it to that do not deserve that gift. There are going to be people there that are wicked, that are... Um, unruly that do not obey the law and they probably did not deserve that gift but that's just kind of what happens when you give 
blanket gifts to the whole nation. Or, or Seneca would talk about how the gods provided rain both to the, the good and the bad. Um, they would provide the sun, both the good and the bad, to help their crops grow or, or whatever that might look like. Um, but, but it's not that they're just trying to reward bad people with gifts. The, the, the truth of the matter is, if you want to give rain to the good, that's going to involve also giving rain to the bad. It's just kind of how that works. However, if a king were going to give like an extravagant gift, fine clothes, or, or something really nice and valuable from his treasury, he's not going to go out of his way and give valuable, expensive gifts to undeserving people. You don't give incongruent gifts of great worth to people who are not worthy of that gift. And, and in fact, that, that was kind of even considered as good and right. That's fair. That's just. If he starts giving... If he starts giving gifts to all the wicked, evil people in the kingdom, then, the, then everyone else in the kingdom is going to go, this, this isn't good. This isn't a just king. This isn't a fair system. Think about it like this. If, if we're, we're kind of coming into tax season here, and, and if Governor Fallon made this decision without really telling anybody that everyone who cheats on their taxes this year, we're going to send them $1,000 in the mail. Um, if she were to enact that rule and, and all these people started getting $1,000 in, in the mail, we wouldn't say, oh, how kind of her, how benevolent of her, how, how sweet to, to give gifts to the undeserving. No, we would say that's not right. That's not fair. You don't, you don't give gifts to people who don't deserve it like that. What about all the people who, who didn't cheat on their taxes, who tried to do the right things? And so there was this kind of struggle to, yes, we want gifts to be given from kindness and from benevolence, and we want grace from God to flow from his kindness and benevolence. But at the same time, you've got to hold kindness alongside of justice, alongside of righteousness and fairness. And this was the issue with the Jewish people around the first century and this kind of period surrounding it, what we would call Second Temple Judaism. Um, when we read the writings here, for a long time, the Jews have gotten a bad rap by Christians. We have tended to accuse them of just kind of straight-up legalism and works-based righteousness to say all the Jews they all believed that the only way you could be saved was by doing good deeds and you had to do more good deeds than bad deeds and if you did a whole lot of good deeds then you could be saved you could be in the kingdom part of God's people that really isn't a fair description of the way they thought of things the truth is that the Jews really did have a concept of grace they knew that it was God's grace that would allow them to be a part of his people and they recognized that everyone was to some degree unworthy of God and his goodness and his glory. And so um, to be a part of his kingdom, to, be, um, to belong to him involves some level of grace. And yet they could not fully get their mind around this idea of incongruity because they, they believed that God was also just and that he was also fair. And so it just made sense that... Um, even though none of us like fully deserve it, that, that the good gifts that God is going to give, and particularly when it comes to being a part of his kingdom, when it comes to saving people, when it comes to um, allowing people to be in his presence, that that gift, that kind of grace was, was only going to be given to the people who were, who were to some degree righteous who kind of deserved it, that, that, that's, that, that he wasn't going to give that kind of grace to, say, tax collectors and prostitutes. That would be absurd. That would be unfair. That wouldn't be righteous to do those things. And that's what makes Paul's writing in Romans 5 so amazing. In Romans 5 and in other places, but in, in our text that we've been studying this week, it, it makes it so amazing because in a culture, not just the Jewish culture, but the Greco-Roman culture, where gifts were, were, were really valuable. And so it was important to be very wise and careful with your gifts. You did not just distribute those gifts arbitrarily to anybody. You wanted to be careful that you gave it to someone who was going to pay you back in return, who was not going to squander the friendship or the gift that you were offering to them, who, who was not just going to... Um, 
turn and waste it or, or never really care about that gift. You wanted to be really careful that you gave it to the worthy, to the deserving. Paul steps into the middle of this culture and he says in places like Romans 5 that there is good news and that is God is everything opposite of that. That God does not withhold his gifts and withhold his grace to only give it to worthy people. Look at the way that he describes it in Romans 5. Look at the way that he describes the kinds of people that get God's grace. He he says that we are weak people, weak morally, um, not able to kind of hold it together ourselves. He says that we are ungodly. He calls us sinners. He even goes so far as to say that we are God's enemies when he sent his son Jesus to die for us, that we were against him. See, the way we talk a lot about our life before God, we use, you use this idea of lost or blind, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I, I once was blind, but now I see. And those are good and true words. Those are biblical understandings. But the Bible also says our, our situation was a lot worse than that, actually. Like we the picture is not of, of a small child who wanders off into the woods and gets lost and a father has to come find him. It was, it was worse off than that. It was, it was this situation. An American soldier is walking the streets of Aleppo when all of a sudden he is attacked, ambushed by a, an ISIS terrorist. And that ISIS terrorist is trying to kill that soldier and so they engage in combat there for a few minutes in the street. Uh, when all of a sudden another American soldier sees this and he takes aim at the, at the ISIS soldier, at the ISIS militant, and he fires off a shot at him. And, and all of a sudden the, the other American soldier is, who's fighting with the ISIS militant, he sees this and he throws himself in front of the bullet, taking the bullet to save that militant's life. If we were to see something like that, we would say that's... That, that's crazy. That, that doesn't make any sense. You don't, you don't jump in the way of a bullet for someone who's trying to kill you, who is actively your enemy in that moment. That doesn't make any sense. And yet, this is the very thing that Romans 5 is describing, that God, while we were enemies, while we were against him, God sends his own son to die in our place, to reconcile us back to him. And this is amazing kind of language that Paul is describing here. Not only does he use some some big words to describe how unworthy we are, he also uses some really big ideas to describe the kind of gifts that God gives to us. In verse 1, he says that we get through Jesus peace with God, peace with our maker. In verse 5, he says that we get God's love poured out into our hearts. In verse 9, he says that we are saved from God's wrath through Jesus. In verse 10, he says that we are reconciled back to God through the death of Jesus. Do you realize, as you listen to those things spoken, do you realize that what Paul is describing is the deepest longings of every human heart? I think that every human being, whether they know that God exists or not, whether they're able to admit that to themselves or not, I think our deepest longings is, is to have peace with our maker, with the one who made everything we look around and see. I, I think what we were made to be in a relationship with God, so this ache inside of all of us is to be reconciled back to him, to be back in a right relationship with him. And, and I believe that so many of the wicked things that we do in our lives, they, they come from this desire, this need to be loved to be accepted. And so we do so many things trying to find that acceptance, trying to find that worth and that love. And Paul says in Romans 5, you have that, not because of anything you've done. You have God's love poured out into your heart through the Spirit. These are the most amazing gifts that we could ever long for or need. And he gives this to all of us. And, And the truth is, Paul makes this case all the way from Romans 1 through 4, that none of us deserve this. That for all of us, these gifts are incongruent with us. They are so much bigger and so much better than any of us deserve, which leads us back to that question of fairness. If it's true that none of us deserve this, then how can God be fair in giving all of these good things to us? And that is, I think, a question that is answered in that Romans 3 passage that 
Paul or that that Scott pointed us to earlier in his teaching Romans 3 verses 21 through 26 these verses so important because they answer this question how does God give really really good gifts his grace to those who do not deserve it Romans 3 21 through 26 I'm just going to read it says this but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. This is Romans 3.23, that famous verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, nobody deserves it. But then he says, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, that word propitiation, it's a big one, but it simply means something that absorbs or turns away the wrath of someone else. So what he's saying is that all of us, because of our sin, because we are enemies of God, we had his wrath coming down on us and we deserved it. And it was rightful, righteous wrath that was coming to punish us in our sins. And God instead allowed Jesus to be a propitiation to absorb all that wrath. He put my sins on Jesus. He put your sins on Jesus so that he could punish those sins. And, and punish them rightfully, and therefore he wouldn't have to punish them um, on us. He, he continues there in verse 25, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, he didn't punish them like he, they deserved to be punished. He waited to punish them in Jesus. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the answer is, how does God give the ultimate gift, that is himself? How does God give us himself? How does God give us grace, even though we do not deserve it? Romans 3, 21 through 26 says this, that he makes us into the kind of people that deserve it. He gives us, he takes our sins and places them on Jesus. And then he takes Jesus' righteousness and gives that to us so that we, we now, in, in some crazy way, deserve it. And, and this is the beauty of incongruent grace um, that is lifted up throughout the scriptures. So here's kind of the last thing I'll leave you with. We said this, that um, these two areas, at least, non-circular uh, gift giving and incongruent gift giving were not very common in Paul's day when he wrote these words. Now, Paul, in contrast to the culture, lifts up incongruent grace and says, the culture may not do this very much, but God is big on this. In fact, this is probably the foremost definition of what God's grace is. Incongruent. We don't deserve it, but he gives it anyway. So here's the question. What about non-circular grace? Does Paul agree with his culture? that non-circular gift giving isn't really a thing? Or does he speak in contrast to that as well? And that's what we're going to talk about this next week um, when we get into Romans 6.